Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCPod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. As a D2C brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, FinalLoop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try FinalLoop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finalloop.com slash D2C pod and get 14 days free and a two-month P&L within 24 hours with all the e-com data and breakdowns you need to crush it. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're just we're joined by Justin Seidenfeld, who is the co-founder of a bunch of companies, uh, Doris Dev, Canopy, and Factored Quality. So, Justin, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Awesome. Yeah, Blaine, thanks so much for having me on. Um, so, my background goes deep in consumer goods, uh, specifically around developing new products, uh, bringing them to market, and then going deep on the supply chain setup and management side. Um, I spent the last 10 years um, either developing or setting up supply chains for different um, durable product brands, um, predominantly uh, through a company that I started seven years ago called Doris Dev, which is a product design, development, and supply chain management company. Um, We've got offices in New York and Hong Kong and specialize in bringing new product ideas from concept all the way to shipping. Um, From that, we incubated our own product brand called Canopy, which we launched to market a little over two years ago. The Hero product is a humidifier that has some technology baked in, which focuses on the the health benefits for skin. Um, And so that brand has been positioned as a beauty wellness tool. Um, And that's been really exciting to build uh, a brand from the ground up. Um, And then most recently, we incubated um, a, a managed service a software company called Factored Quality, which provides um, quality control and um, supply chain management services through a single point um, platform um, with managed services on the back end. Um, And that business is providing factory audit, inspection, product testing services for a bunch of physical product brands around the world. So yeah, there's going to be a ton to unpack in this episode. So really excited to get into it. Um, Why don't we start with um, Doris Dev. How did you get started in the world of product development? And, uh, you know, what was, I guess, a little bit of your background before there? And how, how did you get started? Let's just talk about Doris Dev for a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So I actually stumbled into it um, by getting involved uh, with a with a startup um, now a little over 10 years ago, um, which uh, with a company called Quirky, um, which a lot of people know brings up kind of a visceral reaction a lot of the times when I I say that that's kind of where my roots came from, um, because it was notorious back in the day for 
some really great things, but then also having a momentous spiral into bankruptcy at the end of it. Um, but Quirky was a VC-backed tech-enabled product business um, that leveraged the power of the crowd and a community to bring really great product ideas uh, into the world. Um, and I was very lucky in that I kind of stumbled into a job there um, predominantly because I didn't, you know, didn't know what I really wanted to do um, out of school, but was really attracted to the intersection of what Quirky stood for, which was physical products, um, operate like real world operations, um, consumer goods, um, technology, um, the kind of power of the community at a time when that was kind of burgeoning uh, or there was a burgeoning tech scene in New York. Um, and so that kind of brought all of it in under one hood. Um, and it was a really fun place to kind of get my, my beak wet. Um, and, um, you know, that experience, I was, I, I started working at Quirky, ended up working there for five years as the kind of company uh, went on this rocket ship trajectory, was very lucky because of that, because I got kind of exposure to a lot of different aspects of building a business from the ground up. Um, but most specific, most specifically is I got asked by the CEO of that company to essentially go set up our manufacturing and sourcing office in Asia um, with about three days notice. So on a Thursday, he asked me, you know, hey, we need to be, we need somebody to be on the ground in Hong Kong by Monday morning because we had an important meeting with a partner then. Um, and so I had to pack my bags and get on a plane to go to Hong Kong that weekend, um, initially, which was only supposed to be a three month stint, which turned into two plus years uh, living in Hong Kong and essentially running around China, setting up production lines for all different consumer goods. Um, but that was really kind of my foray, my being thrown into the deep end of uh, supply chain operations um, and, and a boot camp in all things, bringing new products to market and manufacturing. Um, but yeah, from, yeah, so, from, from, so, no, keep going. Oh, no. And, and, and so Quir Quirky was just like a really special experience. Again, this rocket ship trajectory got exposure to all different aspects of the business, but really the, the, the basis for my background in um, product and supply chain started with me kind of building out a network of manufacturing partners in Asia when I lived out there. Um, when I moved back to New York, um, started getting a ton of inbound from, from friends and friends of friends who are looking for help bringing their product ideas into the world and, you know, came from different backgrounds, from finance, from creative, from, you know, whatever, but they didn't necessarily know how to take their concept idea, put pen to paper to flesh out what it was, and then you go find, uh, you know, or set up a, a manufacturing uh, infrastructure to bring it, you know, to bring it to market. Um, and so I got a ton of organic inbound when I moved back to New York. This was in 2015. Um, and the next few years, as kind of the, the D2C product boom uh, happened in New York, there was just a ton of folks that were looking for help. And that was kind of the genesis for what ultimately became Dorisev. Cool. Uh, that makes a ton of sense. And I'd love to kind of talk about uh, you know, when you started Doris Dev, what some of the different first, let's go through a couple different like examples of products that you guys were able to bring to life that you worked on at Doris Dev. And then from there, I'd love to like also just talk about, uh, you know, the frameworks for taking products to market. So let's just start with a couple anecdotes of um, 
projects that you worked on and how you were able to execute them and what it took to be able to uh, produce and deliver them? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, now where we are with Thorsev is we get involved with all different types of companies, startups, growth stage, everything in between. We love getting involved with pre-revenue businesses, basically entrepreneurs or startups that have an idea but don't know how to get it made. And that's kind of where, you know, the first few anecdotes of, of project, you know, projects that we work, worked on, brands that we worked on, that, that, that was the profile of them. Um, so a couple that I can speak to, one is we got involved with um, Gravity Blankets, which was um, a weighted blanket brand that actually launched out of, uh, launched through a partnership with a media company um, called Futurism uh, back in 2017. Um, or maybe 2016, um, but we, um, you know, we, we initially connected with that team and the founder who launched a Kickstarter um, around the concept of the weighted blanket and creating a humanized commercial version of that product um, for the wellness category to focus on the benefits it provides for, um, you know, mental, you know, and, and physical health. And um, they had kind of tested it through this Kickstarter, but didn't necessarily have um, the know-how, the network, or the infrastructure to really then bring their product uh, into the world with a robust manufacturing kind of setup. And they didn't necessarily have the chops or understanding of how to build a brand and extend kind of the product beyond that first offering. Um, and so that was a really good uh project for us to get involved with because A, we got to go deep on setting up a robust supply chain for scale because the demand out of the gate coming off the coattails of, of their Kickstarter was immense. I think they're one of the highest grossing Kickstarters of all time, having done, I think, about $5 million in the first 30 days. Um, and so we had to hit the ground running in terms of uh, finding and setting up a manufacturing you know, supply chain for scale in China very quickly that was able to produce high volumes uh, you know, right off the bat. Um, and then the other thing that was really exciting about it was because it was incubated out of a media company, they didn't have deep product expertise or the know-how to understand how to essentially um, expand beyond that first product offering. And so we were able to really lean in and flex um, some of our expertise in that area and help drive kind of expansion uh, for the brand beyond that singular product. So that was, um, you know, introducing new product line extensions behind their hero product, introducing totally new product lines like the weighted eye mask that was kind of derived off of the basis for what, what they did with their with the weighted blanket concept. Um, and then beyond that, really setting up an operational infrastructure for them that allowed them to scale the business, scale distribution beyond just a Kickstarter um, and become, uh, you know, a wholly, uh, a fully fledged kind of product brand. Um, and so that was a really great starting point for, for Doris. Um, yeah. And, and, and from there, uh, you know, that's so, so interesting having the whole manufacturing network in place is going to be key. And then as you start to like learn lessons from working across multiple brands, you're able to, you know, kind of understand not only what products may be compelling to yourself and like, I'm sure we'll get into Canopy as well, but yeah, we'd just love to look, get some of the learnings about 
when you start to work across a couple different products, like what do you, what immediately comes to your mind when you're thinking about product development, starting a brand, or even if you're a brand and you're looking to develop new products, like what are some of the either mistakes that people might fall into that you'd, you'd be like, oh, I've seen this happen so many times, like let's definitely avoid that. And what are some of the big opportunities that you'd be thinking of having worked in this space that are really you know important for brands or new entrepreneurs to tap into? Yeah, I think some of the, you know, there, there's definitely a laundry list of um, pitfalls or things to, to really think about going into um, building a new product and, and brand from scratch um, that, that a lot of folks, you know, fall into. One of the big ones that I always harp on is really validating the concept and the demand um, before you invest time, energy and money uh, into the product. Um, and what I mean by that is really making sure that you've identified a problem solution or a problem set that or a product can solve and that there are specific features and claims that you can build a new product offering around that will address those problems out of the gate and that you've done the work to really validate that there's demand for it, not just, you know, operating on a hunch or operating on a feeling. Um, and that can be done in a lot of different ways, you know, whether it's leveraging your network to kind of snowball um, feedback and, and momentum around, you know, what people like or believe or think that there's value around. That's kind of as simple as having as many conversations as possible or doing, you know, surveys to your to your network um, to, you know, much more robust uh, exercises of doing like claims or validation studies or, you know, using Facebook um, and kind of measuring um, conversions on specific things that you can use. You can drive traffic on a, you know, a landing page to measure conversions on specific claims or a product idea or seeing if people would be interested in, in buying a product. And um, we have a ton of um, brand partners, meaning clients on the Dora side that have done different types of exercises uh, in that regard before they invest energy, you know, around time or money into the product itself. Um, and the reason I always harp on that is because it's just such an expensive endeavor to invest into a new product, both not just capital, but also just like, you know, human capital and energy wise that you want to make sure that there is demand behind what you're building. Um, so validating your idea, uh, with whatever tools and whatever you have access to is a, is a really important part of, you know, the first step. Yeah. Um, would, would, would you say on the idea validation side, would you say, um, you know, a great way for it is, uh, like you were saying, spinning up either different landed landing pages, maybe testing a couple ads, see if you maybe putting together a wait list, just like being able to understand if people are, you know, clicking on it or if it's something that just people don't care about. Is that, is that one of the, a good way that you've seen be successful? Yeah, a hundred percent. So, uh, you know, landing pages, there's obviously you can get really um, professional and go very deep with that approach. And I think that that's a really smart way to do it. And you can really get a ton of confidence if you do it well and do it correctly. Um, but it doesn't have to be so, I guess, you know, so, so refined. I've, I've seen other, you know, other folks use Instagram surveys, um, email surveys, Google forms, um, different ways of just kind of trying to measure some um, form of, you know, traction. 
Um, and I think, you know, obviously the landing page approach is a really smart way to do it. If you want to, you know, if you don't have an existing brand, um, if you already have an existing brand or you've got a brand partner that you can tap into that has an audience, a relevant audience for who you think you would be targeting, then we always also recommend to see if you can kind of tap into some of the like hyper passionate people within those communities um, to kind of go deeper on the product concept with them. Um, and so we've, we've seen that work well for, you know, brands that are in market or influencers or folks that have audiences that they're able to tap into. Got it. And then, so let's assume that you found a product that has a bit of traction or pull to it. What are kind of the first steps, um, you know, in working with you guys, like from the, the Doris Dev perspective, like what are the first things you're thinking about? Are you thinking about, you know, who the best manufacturing partners are for this thing? Are you thinking about like building out a supply chain? Like, how are you thinking then once there's, you know, once we've reached the, okay, it's time to go moment and let's actually put things in production. How do you think about things next? Yeah. So there, there's two ways we approach, uh, kind of creating new products. Um, there's the first path is kind of starting from scratch and you're building a custom product to your vision. Um, which is going to be unique around your product design. It's going to address specific you know, pain points that you're solving for, and you're really building something from a blank canvas um, as your you know, starting point. The second approach is you can actually start with what I would call an off-the-shelf customization approach, which is you're going to go and actually scour the landscape for a manufacturing partner that is producing something you know that's relevant or similar and you're going to go find a product that's in market um, that you can engage a manufacturing partner to then customize to make your own obviously there's going to be limitations and trade-offs if you go down that path but that is also you know a different path that you can take that a a ton of brands have started down kind of path b um, and there's trade-offs for, for both, right? So if you go down that first path with a cust- totally custom product, obviously you're gonna end up with something totally unique and, and is, is uniquely yours, but you are going to invest upfront in the design of that, having to validate it, building something from scratch is really complicated and expensive and time-consuming and frustrating. So there's a lot of uh, you know pitfalls that you can kind of run into if you go down that path. Um, and versus the other side, you're just going to be limited in kind of certain aspects of what you're going to end up with um, that you have to understand. You know those limitations um, from the get-go, um, but it will be less expensive and potentially um, less ex- less exhausting and, and draining. Cool. And now I kind of want to talk about, uh, you know, you've been in market, you've been helping different brands kind of think through bringing their products to life. You know what it takes to kind of execute against them. So when did the inspiration for Canopy come up? How did you think about that? What gave you guys conviction that it was something that you wanted to incubate yourselves? And yeah, why don't you just walk us through the whole kind of flow through Canopy from the inception of the idea all the way to the execution, how the growth of it happened and what that whole story looked like. Yeah. So with Doris Dev, you know, it's a it's a product development service business. So we are very lucky in that we work with a ton of incredible brand partners and clients. And through that experience, we've, um, you know, engaged with and worked with incredibly smart people 
um, that have different perspectives on how to build product, how to launch product, how they're going to grow and scale their businesses. And so for us, it's been a really um, amazing experience in that we've been, you know, we, we've had kind of front row seats into uh, a lot of different ways people have brought product and brands to to market and scale them. Um, and in the back of our mind, we always, you know, wanted to bring our own ideas into market. Um, and so within the four walls of Doris, we've always kind of encouraged and, and thought about um, testing um, and noodling on, on homegrown product ideas. And so we'd been doing that since, you know, day one within, within Doris Dev. Um, back in 2019, the idea for actually designing or re-engineering the humidifier, um, we, we got some traction internally, you know, at Doris, my, my partner and, and head of product at Doris, um, his girlfriend was using a humidifier year round as a beauty hack and had the ritual of breaking out, you know, vinegar and Q-tips every Sunday to clean it out so that it wouldn't mold over. And that was just the initial nugget that got us interested in the category. When we started talking to people about humidifiers, we realized everybody had that same experience that they get moldy, they get gross, they you know get thrown away after a season because of how gross they get. And everybody had you know different, essentially horror stories about their experience with humidifiers. Um, and the other end of the spectrum is a lot of people didn't even know what humidifiers were, uh, but the people that did, they all had horror stories about it. So that was kind of the initial nugget that we latched onto. And this, this was the beginning of 2019. We basically then spent all of 2019 working on the R&D and the design of what ultimately became Canopy. Um, and as we went through that process, we uncovered a bunch of these pain points that people had with humidifiers. Um, and we addressed them through either the design process or the engineering process to basically come up with features and solution sets that would address what those, what those pain points were. And as we went through the process, we just kind of kept, you know, gaining momentum and it kept snowballing into something that we really felt, you know, had legs. Um, and, and ultimately we realized, you know, we were on the track to design and create a category defining best in class humidifier. Um, and so by the end of 2019, we were like, okay, we have something here. This has really resonated with a lot of people. Um, and the big aha moment at that you know, at that point was actually um, going back to the original genesis of the the, the problem and, and the concept from Lucas's girlfriend, um, which was she was using it as a beauty hack for her skin. And as we put that idea and the concept in front of people, that really resonated with a ton of folks, which was that a lot of people were using humidifiers as this beauty hack. It was kind of this underground um, thing that, you know, was sometimes talked about and sometimes referenced in, in beauty media, but never really highlighted or focused on. And so we realized, you know, that there was an opportunity to really lean in, really lean into that and position Canopy, not just as a best in class humidifier, but really focus on, uh, positioning it as a beauty and wellness device for healthy skin. Um, and that's when it really, um, you know, garnered a ton of momentum, and um, and that was that was when we decided to spin it out into a, a standalone company.
So I'd love to kind of dig in there uh, on, you know, what made Canopy a beauty product versus a humidifier, right? Like I know, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with humidifiers. I've used them before, um, whether in the mountains or the desert, sometimes the room's dry and you just need a humidifier. But what, I guess you said there was kind of a nugget where you realized that people in the beauty community were sort of using it, but what were they doing differently? What led to the ability for you guys to see this as a market opening up and what led to you being able to productize it? I know you spoke to like mold growing and like different things of cleanliness. Um, and actually as a sidebar, one thing I noticed about my humidifiers is like, if I'm out in like Las Vegas, for example, um, the water's like really hard. So if you pour the tap water in the humidifier, like it basically, I can wake up in the morning, it looks like it snowed in my room or something. So yeah. I'll like, I'll, yeah, I'll just a, use like, have you seen that real, before? Yeah, yeah, oh, that's a common problem. It's called white dust. Um, yeah. And it's essentially minerals that are, that are getting spewed into your indoor environment. That means that you're using an ultrasonic humidifier, right? The traditional humidifier that has a chimney of mist coming out the top. Yep. And, and that's a really common problem with people, you know, that, that use humidifiers um, all throughout the year, all throughout the country and the world is that depending on the type of water in your region, there's all different minerals in the water. There's metals in the water. Whatever's in your water is getting spewed into your indoor environment. And so that was one of the things that we solved with Canopy is that we introduced or we used, we, we basically uh, designed the thing to have a totally different product architecture so that it uses evaporation instead of ultrasonic humidification. There's a filter that the water has to pass through and it captures all of the metals and the minerals on it so that all you're spewing out from the device is purified um, humidity. And there's no, there's no opportunity for the metals or the minerals or the particulates to, to be included in what comes out of the device. Um, so that's actually a feature of Canopy. That was one of the pain points. What you just, your story, your story is one of the stories we heard through the R&D process and something that we incorporated into like the re-engineering of the product to solve for that. That's so funny because yeah, I guess my solution to the, the, the problem is like going over to my RO filter and like dumping a bunch of RO filtered water into this humidifier, <laughs> which seems yeah, like, and which seems like ridiculous filling a three gallon tank with like like RO filter drinking water. So um, yeah, from a product standpoint, it just makes a ton more sense to put the filter in the humidifier, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, 100%. And most humidifier manufacturers recommend that you have to use distilled water, which to your point is, you know, is, it sounds ridiculous. It's like, you know, showering with Evian. Um, but with, with Canopy, you can just use normal tap water um, and all of that particulate gets trapped in the filters. Got it. Um, so after developing the product, it seems like the big kind of innovation were one, the, the way in which you guys were actually turning the water into, um, you know, the humidifier form, uh, as well as the filtering process and a couple other things. But as you took it to market, how were you able to start like leveraging that feedback and that product to like really kind of grow your own category? Was there any other competition in the space? Like, why don't you talk us through after you've developed the product and you realize that there was this kind of window for innovation, what the next phase of the journey looked like for Canopy? Yeah, I, so the first step in that was really focusing really on creating a best in class product and product experience. Um, and so for us, that was making this category defining humidifier and making all of the features thoughtful and uh, addressing of all of those problem solution sets that we talked about 
and then essentially bundling that into a design-led form factor that we knew people you know would be attracted to um, and so that was like the first step was making sure that our product was a best in class leading across all of the reasons why somebody would buy the product to begin with um, what we realized through the conversations and exploration in that you know first year of development was that there was this opportunity to really position it as a beauty tool because nobody because people kind of were somewhat familiar with the idea that of you know uh, using a humidifier was good for your skin um, and the reason it, it it's good for your skin is because um, driving your indoor environment or, or the environment that you put your skin in um, to optimal relative humidity, which is between 40 and 60% um, relative humidity, helps improve and increase the skin barrier health. So it helps retain moisture so you won't see you know, some of those fine lines and wrinkles that get formed. Um, and it helps prevent um, you know, things from being absorbed into the skin that you otherwise don't want to. Um, and so um, that, that, that was the basis for it. And some people knew that as kind of this beauty hack, there's folks on, you know, influencers and folks that were promoting humidifiers, um, as part of their beauty regimen, but there wasn't really a brand that stood for that. Um, and so we thought that that was an opportunity. Um, you know, everybody's focused, you know, in the beauty world of investing into product that goes on their skin or in their body, but nobody's really thinking about the environment that they put their skin into. Um, and so we thought that there was really an opportunity to lean in and tell that story and build a brand around that intersection. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we really leaned in for, for Canopy. Um, and, you know, my background and my co-founder and partner from Doris, our backgrounds go deep in durable products, not so much on the beauty side. And so our first step was bringing people into the fold that we trusted that could help us navigate um, kind of the beauty landscape, the, the landscape that we didn't really understand. So there were two people in particular that were really helpful. One was we ended up um, bringing on a dermatologist um, who helped with that initial phase of validating claims and um, positioning the, the kind of the product claims around the benefits for skin health. Um, that's Dr. Dendi Engelman. She's a New York City-based dermatologist um, who is an, in the top of her field for cosmetic dermatology. Um, and she was already an advocate for humidifiers. And so for us bringing a category defining best in class, you know, easy maintenance version of a humidifier that she could get excited about um, was kind of an easy proposition for her to get involved as essentially an advisor and a consulting dermatologist. So that happened in 2019. The other person that we, um, that we were lucky to come across and, and get connected to um, was somebody that we brought in as our third co-founder, um, Eric Nair, who ended up uh, becoming our CMO. Um, and he had incredible um, uh, depth uh, and expertise in, in, in beauty. So he was an early employee at um, Birchbox, um, was there for, I think, almost eight years, then went on to work um, at Walmart to incubate a, a, a homegrown um, beauty brand for them for a couple of years before joining us um, as a co-founder and then ultimately CMO for Canopy. Um, and he was instrumental in essentially crafting our brand strategy around essentially positioning Canopy as this beauty brand and as an entrant into the beauty world. Um, and that was really helpful for us because 
again, I don't, I don't have the depth or the expertise with, you know, with that category. The last two years, I've, I've learned a ton and, and uh, it's been very eye opening. Um, but going into it, you know, that wasn't really my, my area of expertise. Amazing. And then as you guys started to go to market, why don't you just talk us through what the go to market for that brand looked like? You guys clearly brought in the right people, experts in the industry, um, you know, CMO that can help with the positioning and as well as like relationships in the field. But then when it actually came to taking taking the product to market, like, why don't you walk us through your first couple product cycles? Um, what was the experience? How did you get it out there? What was the feedback that was coming back from it? And what did the growth of the brand look like? Yeah, for sure. I would say the the anchor for all of it was really product uh, centric in that we were very confident that we created a really compelling product offering and that we packaged it into something that, you know, would resonate with um, the right people, with our target you know demographic. Um, but we were very confident that people would love the product. And we knew that because we had done a year of R&D. We had done a ton of testing and validating of the product before, you know, we actually launched it to market. And so felt very confident that, you know, the thing had legs. Um, and so one of, and, and I'm going to pair that with, we also had a fairly limited budget. So we didn't, you know, go out and raise venture capital. We didn't have a huge, you know, um, um, access, access to capital to go, just go spend on performance marketing and kind of get a splash through kind of the paid strategy. Um, and so we had to be creative with kind of, uh, you, you know, the way we got the flywheel started with our, with our go-to-market. Um, and so what we decided to do actually was invest a lot of energy into um, the editorial uh, and beauty media world because um, from our early signals, we, we knew that the thing would, uh, you know, canopy and the product would, would have a great reaction there. Um, and so we um, hired a publicist in New York, um, Jenny Ruff, who specialized in beauty. Um, she, you know, essentially helped um, get us in front of a ton of um, beauty editors um, the, the, the month or two before we went to market. Um, and so we did a ton of desk sides with really all of the beauty editors in New York City um, at the time. We sent them products. We did 30-minute phone calls with all of them to walk them through the product, walk them through kind of all of the um, features and attributes and, and reasons why um, Canopy was going to be this game-changing product that we were introducing. Um, and we got really great response to, to those desk sides. I think predominantly because um, we were pitching beauty editors who were, um, you know, for, for the most part, were, were mainly getting pitched on like topicals and consumables, creams, serums, you know, things like that day in and day out. And so for a humidifier brand to pitch them as to like the benefits for skin health was just like a totally refreshing take on, on the category. And so we got a, we got a lot of interest. And I think you know, that basically led to getting a ton of write-ups and exposure at launch, um, which was really instrumental and in then getting a ton of like the flywheel going across all of the other, um, you know, efforts that we needed for activating the brand. Um, and so, but I would say that was, that was really kind of the starting point. Well, that's really cool. And I think that that's something that's important because I think brands fall on two sides. Some just, you know, some really go heavily into PR and then others 
maybe don't. It seems like your product and your network was like really well suited to making this happen, especially because you weren't like trying to run a bunch of PR on, like you were saying, the same exact product and that's been, you know, talked about over and over and over again. Um, but so yeah, that, that all, it, it all makes sense in terms of, you know, you kind of want to build, not only build a great product, but then build a product where you can kind of stand out. And especially when it comes to like the media and distribution side, where, you know, those editors, if they're look, if they're trying to get engagement on their posts, they're trying to drive traffic and they want to write something new and engaging for their audience. Like you guys have the product to do that. Um, so moving forward, let's get into a little bit of, uh, factored quality. Now let's talk a little bit about how all these lessons from not only Doris and what you incubated with canopy, how did that apply and what are you building at factored quality? And why is that really important for brands to be considering, um, in their, you know, as they're, as they're building, scaling and optimizing their brands? Yeah, for sure. So over the last 10, 10 plus years working on, um, product, I would say I have, uh, experience firsthand all of the pitfalls and problems of trying to bring new product to market. Um, you know, for everything from getting totally screwed over by manufacturing partners to running into product, you know, design issues really late in the game to defects and recalls and, you know, everything in between. Um, and through that entire experience, one thing that has always been uh, an anchor to figure it, you know, to being on top of um, any, any, any product business is ensuring that you have a short up supply chain. Um, and so over the last 10 years, what that's meant is really finding the right manufacturing partners, establishing a really good relationship with them, making sure that you've have visibility into what's going on, that there's a mutual you know, two-way line of communication happening with, with your manufacturing partners, that there's a level of trust on both sides, that you're each treating each other with mutual respect, and, and that it is a true partnership because there's work and blood and tears and sweat that, that, that's going into, you know, again, both sides of it. Um, and so through that process, you know, one of the things that we've leaned into on the doorstep side is really um, providing visibility, providing boots on the ground, helping to facilitate that relationship building with with your manufacturing partners. Um, and what we noticed over that time period was that, you know, a lot of it was being done with people and there was no digital platform of record that was kind of serving as this singular system source of truth for everything that was happening. Um, to help basically instill the confidence and provide the visibility of feeling like you had a short up supply chain. Um, and so, and it's something that resonated, you know, that we noticed um, as a team, as a company, as somebody that worked in product for the last, you know, 10 years. Um, and we were very, I guess, lucky um, that, you know, back in 2019, we connected with um, um, the founder of Factor Quality. Um, who he, he and his partners were building um, a supply chain software tool that was unrelated to what, you know, ultimately became factored quality. Um, he approached Doris Dev because he was looking for feedback and insight and guidance on what they were building within the supply chain world. And so uh, my partner at Doris, Lucas, and I got involved in just kind of an advisory capacity helping to provide guidance on what they were, they were building. Um, Fast forward about nine months, um, 
we essentially um, continued to feel the pressures of and the sentiment that there was no single source of truth for all of the work that was happening around quality control and supply chain visibility and um, essentially pitched that to to Prince and, and the team and his team that was working on this supply chain software. Um, and that conversation snowballed into them building a, uh, you know, a beta version of a product to our vision very quickly that we were then able to test within the four walls of Doors Dev with some of our um, clients and some of our brand partners, and then realized that that we were really onto something because again, there wasn't some something that was solving this need um, in the supply chain space for, for so long. Um, and so this was now a year, uh, year and a half ago. And, and since then, Prince and his team um, have essentially built factored quality into a source of truth um, and managed service platform for all things quality control for physical product brands. Um, so if you're a physical product brand and you need to validate a factory partner or ensure that a factory partner is building product to spec, you can actually go into the platform and book factory you know, audits, product inspections, pre-shipment inspections, product testing needs all through the platform and the work gets handled on the other end. Um, and the reason it's so exciting is because all of the work that's happening on the back end creates a lot of really meaningful data that typically doesn't get captured. And all of that data is then is now getting funneled into the factored quality platform, which unlocks really invaluable insights for the brands, for them to maintain their supply chains, maintain the best in class relationships with their supply partners, making sure that they have visibility into everything that's going on um, and, and helping to make the right kind of optimization efforts for, for their supply chain setup. Um, so, so it's been... What what were some of the what were the ways you would do that before? Like I, I know all these things that you're talking about are like really important in terms of like making sure you have your pre-shipment inspection, your quality inspection, all these different things, right? Before they ship you a container of goods that you didn't sign off on. So like what was the process like before? Um was it did you have like an agent who would like manage all this kind of stuff for you where there was no tech? Um and then you were kind of alluding to what you were able to like pick up by productizing it. I'd love to like talk a little bit more um, about the product and like the data side of things as well. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, for again, eight or 10, 10 plus years, the, the way we've managed quality control is that there's different needs in different areas of the world. Different product categories have different, you know, ways in which you would approach quality control. And so it's all very disparate. And so we would have different partners that we would tap into. Um, sometimes they're reliable, sometimes they're not. We would cycle through them because we would have different types of problems with different you know, part agents and, and quality control partners around the world. And so uh, it was just a very fragmented approach to managing quality control across a kind of a holistic um, spectrum that was needed for how we were managing our work. And then the other thing that, you know, was, you know, that, that is a meaningful kind of dimension of this is that all of the output from those activities came back to us in the form of like Word docs and PDF reports and, you know, emails. And so all of that information just kind of ended up all over the place. And there was nothing that kind of tied it together so that we could do, you know, we could better understand how our quality control, um, you know, 
fitness was across our, our supply chains. Um, and so the idea was to bring that all into a single platform, into a single point solution, um, because once we could do that, we could unlock a ton of really invaluable insights um, based off of, of the data if it was all, you know, uh, in a cohesive and organized manner. Um, and so that, w- that was really the genesis for, for, for or the original idea for Factored. So, so how do you see the kind of the space playing out, right? Because I think, um, you know, there's a couple companies that offer this kind of thing as a service as well. You've got um, other companies, like I know we've had, you know, Pietron and they do this kind of thing for creators where they kind of try to connect them to factories. You've got some things like Alibaba, like from your vantage point, what is the, I guess, like, what's the makeup of the space? Who are the players and how do you see things like shaping out over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think the, the distilled answer for that is that um, a lot of the supply chain ecosystem and all of the relevant nodes from idea all the way through chipping and distribution of physical goods, all of those nodes are, are really getting digitized. Um, and the way we see it is that we want to create the node for quality control that's going to speak with all of the other nodes within the supply chain ecosystem. Um, so that means that you know the nodes for product design and development that are being digitized will speak to um, you know the manufacturing partners and you know purchase order management you know nodes that are creating the purchase orders. Um, and, you know, we want to be the node that's providing visibility into the quality control, um, work that needs to get done across, you know, that supply chain ecosystem. Um, and that, that's what we're building. So we're building something that will play nicely with a lot of those other partners that you've mentioned. Um, we're not trying to create a closed system, um, kind of, you know, uh, fenced in ecosystem. We, we think that, the ecosystem is open and that we want to you know make sure that communication is flowing smoothly from our pipes to you know to the other nodes amazing and kind of as we wrap up here justin um you know where can where can we connect with you where can are, are you on twitter linkedin and where can we find out more about uh you know doris dev canopy and factor quality yeah for sure so i best best place to reach out to me is on linkedin um justin seidenfeld I think I'm the only one, but I could be surprised uh, to be wrong. Um, and I'm also very, uh, you know, open to getting emails to uh, to my Doris Dev inbox. So Justin at DorisDev.com, if you've got ideas for new product, looking for help with supply chain, or just shooting the shit about product and supply chain, don't don't be shy. Sweet. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Justin. We learned a ton, and can't wait to uh, to keep keep tabs on on your guys on not only factored quality, but all the products that are coming out of Doris Dev and the products that you guys are incubating as well. So thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Blaine. This was great. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode.